God is in control. God is in control. Amen. If you doubt that, just try to make plans. <laughs> this week, I wonder how many of your plans, things on your calendar, were interrupted by two snowstorms. Mm. You're kids, you're like, thank the Lord for those interruptions, right? Amen. The service series we're in was planned almost a year ago. Me and my wisdom uh, figuring out that, man, towards the end of 2021, there's a, a four-chapter book that will fit so neatly and nicely into the theme of Christmas that we can stick in those four last weeks of the year to close out 2021. It will be great to meditate on Ruth in December. Yes. <laughs> well, well, those plans were interrupted by sickness. Life in general over the last few years the entire calendars of 2020 and 2021, and it seems like 2022 will be interrupted. But what seem like interruptions in our lives are often interventions by God. All right. All right. Showing that he is involved in every area of our lives and totally in control over all of it. Amen. We've seen that in the book we've been studying over the past month or so, the book of Ruth, that God is totally in control. We saw it in Ruth chapter one as we learned of, of this widow, Naomi, who had left Judah with her family, her husband and two sons, but they'd all died and she was left alone with her daughter-in-law. She heard, however, that the Lord was, was moving, was working, had provided food back in Bethlehem. The famine had been lifted, and so she went back home. And we saw how the Lord had been moving all along, preparing for her and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, to be provided for. In chapter 2, Ruth happens to meet this Boaz, who's a family redeemer who provides food for the family, who is, is, is someone who can prosper them going forward. At least they think. And so in chapter 3, the last time we were in Ruth, we see a plan concocted to go see if this man would marry Ruth and would take the responsibility to provide long term. He says yes, but he also complicates things. He says there's someone else who might be able to do it before me. So Ruth has to wait. In God's providence, over the last three weeks, we've been waiting with her, wondering what's going to happen. Will the Lord show up? If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Ruth chapter 4? Ruth chapter 4, and if you're using one of the Bibles under the chairs, you can find it on page 224. And again, as our brother Chris said, if you don't have a Bible of your own and need one, feel free to take the Bible under that chair home with you as I give to you. I want everyone to have a copy of God's Word. Ruth chapter 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. 
Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel regarding redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon. I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be, be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadad. Amenadad fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. And here's what I... I think is that the main point of Ruth chapter 4 and really what can be summarized as the, the main point of the entire book of Ruth. Even through setbacks and sorrows, God's purposes to redeem his people will be realized. Even through setbacks and sorrows, God's purposes to redeem his people will be realized. As we walk through chapter 4, we see 
two kinds of scenes. First, we see redemption salt. Redemption salt. We see that in verses 1 through 6. And then secondly, we see redemption accomplished. We see that in verses 7 through 22. So redemption salt, and then redemption accomplished. First, redemption salt. One of the first things we see as we open up chapter 4 is that Boaz is a man of his word. He's backed up his promise to Ruth at the threshing floor back in chapter 3 that he would see in the morning if the nearer redeemer would, would redeem her that he told her about. And he's confirmed Naomi's assertion the next day at the end of chapter 3 as she told Ruth, who returned with news of what Boaz has seen, that this man will not rest this day until the matter is settled. We learn here that Boaz telling Ruth about this nearer redeemer and telling her to wait to see if he would redeem her wasn't a ploy to get himself off the hook, to push pause on Ruth and give himself some time to defuse the situation. He genuinely meant what he said. He was out to make sure that Ruth, and by extension, Naomi, would be cared for. And so while Ruth and Naomi are back home waiting, Boaz is out in the streets working. Verse 1 tells us he had gone up to the city gate and sat down. Now, don't have in your mind here the corner where all the old bums hang out. The city gate is more like the city hall, the town square where important business matters will be handled. You see that all throughout the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 23, verses 17 through 20, it's at the gate of the city where Abraham negotiates and purchases a plot of land to bury his wife, Sarah. And several times in Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapters 21 and 22 and 25, it's at the gate of the city before all the elders that serves as a kind of public courtroom where public charges are heard, where offenders are persecuted or prosecuted, and where legal matters are handled. So when you think, you read the, the, the Old Testament and you think gate of the city, you'll see the term gate of the city. Don't think solely security or protection, keeping people out. Think social hotspot, right, where everybody is. Think downtown D.C. People are constantly buzzing through and important business is being done. Boaz goes to where prominent people would be and where pertinent matters would be discussed. And again, behind his scenes, we see the Lord's hand at work. Because just as Boaz arrives at the city gate and sits down, behold, the Redeemer, the one Boaz had just spoken of to Ruth, just so happens to himself arrive at the city gate. Coincidence? No. Providence. All right. The Lord working out his plans for his people. We've seen this time and again in Ruth. The Lord providentially arranging circumstances and meetings in working to prosper his people. That's been pretty clear time and again, hasn't it? Yeah. But I wonder, do we see it in our own lives? You know, one of the reasons we have the Old Testament 
And the reason it's been preserved is for our instruction and our encouragement. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. God who providentially worked things out in Naomi and Ruth and Boaz's life has not changed. He is still providentially working things out in your life, even if you can't see it. So here we are at the beginning of 2022, looking ahead, ready to be done with 2021. But have you looked back on all God has done in the previous year? Let me take some time after service today and, and talk over lunch with a friend of all the ways the Lord has been working for you, perhaps even in unexpected ways, how he's used trials to grow and strengthen your faith and reliance on him, how he's brought people in your life at just the right moment to encourage you or to equip you or even to rebuke you. That's a helpful and needed exercise because sometimes we are so zoomed in to the problems and trials that it's hard to see what God is doing. Or, or you might see God at work, but only in one specific area. I think we learn in this book that the Lord is at work in hundreds of different ways. And we might be aware of one of them. And yet we need to trust him. God arranges for this Redeemer and Boaz to cross paths. And Boaz calls out to him, turn aside, friend. In the original Hebrew, it's not so much a term of endearment, but rather a term of distance. It's not like we'd introduce someone uh, to another person and say, this is my friend. Instead, it's more like when you see someone that you've met before, but can't remember their name. Hey, friend. <laughs> or, or hey, you. <laughs> would better capture the, the meaning. <laughs> now, now, why is that striking? Well, because the author has been so careful to note people's names in this book, even if we don't see any dialogue or actions from them. I mean, remember how the book started, telling us about this family that left Bethlehem to go to Moab. And every family member is noting. In chapter 1, verse 2, we read the name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife Naomi and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. A couple of verses later we learn that the two sons took two Moabite wives and again they are identified by name. Verse 4 says the name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other was Ruth. At the beginning of chapter 2 we, we meet a new character an important relative who turns out to be one of the family's redeemers. Chapter 2, verse 1 says he was a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. But here in chapter 4, where there's another family redeemer introduced, a closer family redeemer even than Boaz, his name is nowhere mentioned. It's kind of a precursor to what he will do. Nothing. And so his name will not be remembered. But we're working our way there. 
Boaz calls this man to sit at the city gate, the business hotspot, and he complies. Then Boaz goes and calls 10 elders, the, the 10 kind of most respected men of the city, to come and sit down as well. Uh, 10 people perhaps served as a quorum or business transaction. In any case, these men will serve as witnesses to what's about to take place. And now, up to this point, neither this nearer redeemer nor the elders know exactly what's going on, why they've been gathered around. But Boaz does. We see behind his actions a certain determination and intentionality and fervor. He is a man on a mission, not simply to serve himself, but others. Boaz finally reveals in verse 3 why this formal gathering has been convened. He tells this redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it. And then I come after you. This land had been apportioned by God to his people when he brought them into the promised land. That's right. Each clan and each tribe had their own territory. And according to Mosaic law, this land was to never leave that family or clan. Amen. That's one of the reasons this concept of a family redeemer was instituted, to keep the land in the family line. Amen. We read about that in Leviticus 25, verses 25 through 30, where a near relative would purchase the land from a needy, poor relative and keep it until the year of Jubilee. The land would be restored to the original owner or one of their offspring. Elimelech, Naomi's husband, had departed and took his family with him to Moab when the land was no longer producing, when the famine had hit Judah. And now back in Judah, uh, Naomi is poor and destitute and has no husband or sons to work the land or to provide for her. And so she needs one of the family's redeemers to help, to purchase the land and to provide for her long term. Upon learning of the offer, the nearer redeemer jumps at the chance. He says at the end of verse 4, quickly and boldly, I will redeem it. And for us, our heart is kind of breaking here, isn't it? Mm, mm. But why? I mean, this is what was needed, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. Redemption? Mm. And here was a man who said he was going to redeem and provide for Naomi. A solution is found. Well, yes. But, but we don't know anything about this man. That's right, yeah. The whole thing is just kind of cold and matter of fact. I mean, this isn't the ending of the story that we wanted. We want worthy Boaz. That's right. This kind, generous, godly man whose heart we've seen on display. We want him to be the one who helps out. It speaks a little, doesn't it? To the fact that raw actions, devoid of character and affections, don't really move us the same way. Mm. Uh, two people can do something for us. Yeah. Something we really need. Mm. 
But the one who does it out of love, out of care, out of genuine desire is the one whose actions we most appreciate. It reminds me of a scene in the movie where a couple is arguing, airing grievances of one another. And the woman says, I want you to do the dishes. And the man says, I do the dishes. And the woman says, I want you to want to do the dishes. And the man says, who wants to do the dishes? All right, all right, all right. But there's something in that, isn't it? We don't want someone to simply act out of duty, but out of delights. Here this man has just kind of fallen into this deal. And he takes it as soon as it's presented to him. But it's been Boaz who's shown kindness, who's given up his crops, who's given up his best food. It's been Boaz who intentionally has gone out and worked to even arrange this meeting with the nearer redeemer in an effort to, to gain redemption for Naomi and for Ruth. He's the one, in a sense, who's won our hearts. You know, it's the same thing we see with our redemption. Amen. You notice how the Bible doesn't just present it like a good deal that landed in God's lap. No, God pursued us, desired to have us, wanted to redeem us. And it was all motivated by love. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God demonstrated his love for us in this way. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Amen. Because of the great love with which he loved us, God made us alive together with Christ. Amen. God sought out our redemption because he loved us. It's the same with Boaz here in this story. And it's why we want him to be the redeemer. But we see this whole presentation here is really part of Boaz's wise as a serpent, innocent as a dove approach. Notice the instant the Redeemer says he will redeem it, Boaz chimes in with the other part of the deal. He says in verse 5, okay, bet. Now, just so you know, though, <laughs> the day you buy the field from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Now, this is kind of the manual of how not to close a deal. I mean, this is the equivalent of a realtor showing someone a property, laying out all the wonderful features and amenities. It's five bedrooms and four baths. It's got upgraded amenities. It's got a large backyard for entertaining and ample room for storage. And then getting the buyer's verbal commitment. Great, we'll take it. But then the realtor chiming back in. Excellent. Now let me also tell you about the extensive leaks in the bathroom that are constantly an issue and need to be fixed. Oh, and the mold problem in the basement that needs to be remediated. Oh yeah, and the crazy property taxes and HOA fees. You do not do that if you're trying to close a deal. But that's in essence what Boaz does here. He adds on this other major responsibility. The Redeemer must not only take on the land, but also Naomi's daughter-in-law, Ruth. And notice how Boaz describes it. In what for many would be the most off-putting language. 
She's Ruth, the Moabite. The Moabite's still a stench in the nostrils of many Israelites' nose, noses as they're constant enemies. She's also the widow of the dead. She doesn't belong to another man already. Oh, and any children you might have with her would only go to perpetuate her former husband's inheritance. It's the law we talked about before in Deuteronomy chapter 25. Where if a brother has a wife and that brother dies, then his living brother would be responsible for taking on the widow and marrying her, providing children to carry on his lineage. Now, these separate laws about redeeming property in Leviticus 25 and redeeming a widow in Deuteronomy 25 weren't explicitly intertwined. Mm -hmm. The letter of the law did not obligate you to redeem the widow if you were redeeming the property. In fact, technically, only a living brother, not some dis more distant family member, was responsible for carrying on his brother's name through marrying his widow. Mm. But it seems here that it was practice, at least as expressed by Boaz, to understand not just the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. Mm. Not to take the land and leave the widow, but to redeem them both. Mm. And as this nearer redeemer learns of this package deal, he quickly backtracks. I mean, from his confident and quick, I will redeem it. In verse 4, he stutters in verse 6. I, I, I can't redeem it for myself, of course. I mean, unless I jeopardize my own inheritance. Here, you take my right of redemption in it. Well, I cannot redeem it. When the only prospect before him was for his benefit, he was all go. But when some baggage was presented, he bailed out. The cost was too high. You see, when presented with the land, even though he make a, uh, might take a financial hit up front, he'd make his money back over time and maybe even make a profit. And, and in this case, he didn't even seemingly have to give the land back in the year of Jubilee because Naomi would be either dead or too old to take back the land. And conveniently, she didn't have any children who could take the land over either. Amen. This property was staying in this man's family forever. Mm. But when met with the reality that redemption would mean taking on this young Moabite woman and marrying her and having children, and then those children having rights to the land to carry on their family's lineage, mm. this man was not willing to move forward. He was not willing to pay the price. He wanted what would help himself, but not what would help others. I wonder if you're here this morning and you identify quite well with this man. You want all the rewards, but none of the responsibility. You want to be in heaven, but own no responsibility to help others get there. You want to meet with Jesus at the end but are unwilling to do any work, mm. move anything in your schedule to meet with Jesus now. Amen. You want the privileges of having an inheritance in heaven, mm. but are unwilling to pay the heavy cost to get there. Amen. Picking up your cross daily, laying down your life for others, giving and living sacrificially. Amen. Well, well friend, know this. 
that you'll find yourself to be just as this man is here. Nameless. Amen. Not mentioned. In living for yourself now, you'll find your name not recorded in the book of eternal life. Amen. Perhaps Boaz knew the kind of man this near redeemer was. The kind of person who wouldn't take on anything for others. But Boaz is the opposite. He seeks out to help the helpless, mm. to redeem the needy, no matter the cost. He models his God, who sought out Israel in her time of neediness in Egypt and rescued her. And who later, in the person of Jesus, sought out his people to rescue us. Jesus explicitly stating his purpose, I have come to seek and to save the lost. Amen. The cost? His very life. Yeah. The heart and actions of Boaz here are but a reflection of the heart and actions of God seeking to redeem the helpless. Yeah. And what Boaz seeks, he finds. Which leads to our second point where we see redemption accomplished. Point number two, redemption accomplished. And we see it accomplished in two ways in the remainder of this chapter. Mm -hmm. In the present mm. and in the future. Mm. First, in the present. Mm. Immediately after stating that Boaz should, should take his right of redemption, we see this act confirming this transfer in verses 7 and 8. The author tells us that in the former days in, in Israel, at the times in which these events took place, the the way to confirm a transaction was for one person to take off his sandal and give it to another person. It was a kind of visual depiction that a transfer had occurred, which is what happened when this redeemer gave Boaz priority to redeem. Verse 8 says, when he said, buy the land yourself, which also included the rights of Mary Ruth, he drew off his sandal and gave it to Boaz. And notice Boaz's response. He doesn't suddenly have buyer's remorse. He doesn't view it as a burden he unfortunately now has to bear. No, he turns to all the leaders and the people gathered around the city gate and declares in verse 9, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Amen. The name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gates of his native place. Mm -hmm. You are witnesses this day. Mm -hmm. Again, just notice the, the striking difference between Boaz and the nameless redeemer. Mm -hmm. All that that man ran from, Boaz runs towards, mm -hmm. openly accepts proudly declares, yes, I'll take the land that belonged to Elimelech and his sons, Kilion and Malon, but I'll also take Ruth and all the baggage she brings with her. I mean, Boaz specifically outlines all the things about Ruth that turn the other man off. Yes, she's a Moabite. Yes, she's a widow. And yes, taking on her and having children with her will perpetuate her dead husband's inheritance. 
But all those things don't turn Boaz off or turn him away. They turn him towards her. All those things are true, and yet I have bought her to be my wife. Amen. I want her. Amen. And I have her. Amen. And I want everybody else to know about it. He rejoices over the redemption that's been accomplished. Over, over the people who've been redeemed. You know, one of the, the things we all tend to have is an inaccurate view of ourselves. Often, an elevated view of ourselves. We wouldn't marry him or her. Look at all their deficiencies. We see those deficiencies in the spouses we've already married. And attempts to turn our hearts cold towards them. But conveniently, we only tend to see one side. That's right. We fail to see the deep deficiencies and flaws that we possess. Amen. The things that might turn others off. Mm, yeah. I mean, ain't none of us tens. All right. All right. In appearance or personality yeah. or godliness. Amen. And so to live in such a way that you'll only go after those who don't have any sin or shame in their past. Yeah. That you'll only be satisfied with this person if they're perfect. Mm. That you'll only associate with this member if they're from the same race as you. Mm. Or same political party as you. And not some Moabite. Mm. Or our equivalent of an enemy. That you'll only pursue relationships with people if they don't have any baggage in their lives that might weigh you down. Mm. To live in that kind of way is unrealistic and unbiblical mm. and ungodly. Amen. Amen. The reality is we all have spinach in our teeth, mm. sleep in our eyes, all right. shame in our past, mm. sin in our hearts. Yes. In other words, we all have things that make us utterly undesirable. But love moves towards the seemingly unlovable, the undesirable, and says like Boaz, I'll take her. She's mine. Amen. We see it in the scriptures. In Acts chapter 9, all Ananias could see were the undesirable things about old Saul. <laughs> Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. Jesus responds a verse later, yes, but he's a chosen instrument of mine. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, we learn that Satan is the accuser of brothers who accuses us day and night before God constantly. But his accusations don't cool the Lord's affections. Though all his charges may be true, this is more true. They are mine. All right. They belong to me. Yeah. You see, when Jesus came down from heaven, he was not ignorant of the kind of people he was coming to save. A hard-hearted, rebellious, stubborn people. But with full knowledge of who we were, he wrapped his arms around us. He removed our sin from us. He stretched out his arms and died on the cross to save us. And he rose up from the grave showing that his payment for our redemption was sufficient. And now, 
even with all our lingering sins and imperfections, he calls out louder than Boaz, prouder than Boaz, more joyful than Boaz. I have bought them to be my bride. Amen. Amen. Oh, the dignity, the comfort, the security found in those words. Boaz knew all about Ruth and still wanted her and redeemed her. Amen. Jesus knows all about you and still wants you. Amen. And paid the ultimate price, his death on the cross, to redeem you. Amen. And the entire Bible is a public testimony about it. If you're here, you're not a Christian. You, you need to hear this this morning. Jesus means to take you as you are. Amen. Not as you think you need to be. Mm. Not as you hope you one day will be. But just as you are. Now, he won't lead you that way, but he'll take you that way. All right. But you must come to him. Yeah. So come. Turn from your sins today and trust in the one who loves you and has come to save you and redeem you. Yeah. You want to know more about what that looks like? Talk to someone around you after service or talk to me at the door. We love to talk about this wonderful redemption that's found in Christ. The people at the city gate this day respond to Boaz's declaration in verse 11. They exclaim, we are witnesses, publicly acknowledging that their presence further confirms Boaz's redemption of the land and more his redemption and marriage to Ruth. Amen. But what's more interesting is, is what they do. They pray for this couple and what the Lord will do through them. You know, I think it's a good reminder to us as readers who've seen all the interesting ways God has worked to bring about this union, that God is still needing to work in this union. It's a good reminder because often when we get what we want, what we pray to God for, we forget God and stop praying. I mean, you prayed for that job you have now. And do you remember calling out to the Lord fervently for it? But now that you have it, how often do you pray to God to use you in it? You pray to be married, for God to send you a godly spouse. But now that you are married, how often do you pray for your spouse? For your marriage together to magnify the Lord. These witnesses gathered around the gate don't see Boaz and Ruth's marriage as the culmination of God's work. All right. And now that they go on and figure out life on their own, rather they view it as the continuance of God's work yeah. with more work for the Lord to still do. And so they ask the Lord to work in astonishing ways. Amen. They say, may the Lord Make the woman who was coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. They pray that the Lord would make Boaz and Ruth's family line great. Just as Rachel and Leah Jacob's wives built up the house of Israel through their 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Judah. 
12 tribes of Israel. So many roots build up the house of Israel as well. <laughs> Which is astonishing. Because again, Ruth isn't even an Israelite. She's a Moabite. And so they ask that the Lord would use a foreign woman to further his people. But it wouldn't be the first time. They explicitly also hear pray that Ruth and Boaz's house would be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. And what's interesting in that case, if you remember back to Genesis 38, is that Tamar too was a foreign woman, whose husband too, one of Judah's sons, had died. But his brother failed to perform the duties of marrying his deceased brother's wife and giving her children. And so Tamar tricked Judah to sleep with her and to provide an offspring and ensure a future inheritance. As messed up as the whole thing was, it was through this line, this seed between Tamar and Judah, that God would provide blessing, promising in Genesis chapter 49 that one of Judah's descendants would rule. The scepter would be in his hand. The people's prayer here for a prominent offspring mm -hmm. and for Boaz's name and family to be renowned in Bethlehem point to the fact that what happened at the city gate this one day mm -hmm. would have reverberating effects for all time. Mm -hmm. A redemption wasn't just happening at the present, but was going to point to a greater future redemption to come through Boaz and Ruth's seed. Mm -hmm. Verse 13 moves the story along. We read that Boaz took Ruth. She became his wife. And he went into her. And the Lord gave her conception. Again, God's sovereign activity is acknowledged. Boaz married Ruth and slept with his wife. Which again is the biblical pattern. Marriage, then sex. All right. But God gave the seed. Prince, life is a gift from him. Amen. Now, for his own reasons, he doesn't always do that. He doesn't grant that gift of life of children to everyone. But everyone who has received the gift of children has received it from the Lord. Amen, amen. Now, over and over in this book, we're confronted with the re reality that we cannot and should not attribute blessings, yeah. whether in the form of kindness or food or children, to anyone but God. He is the ever-present, all-powerful provider. Amen. God is the ground behind all good. Amen. We see that verbally acknowledging. As the women of the town give praise to God for this child. They say to Naomi in verse 14, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and nourisher in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you was more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. I just notice a few things here. At first, it's, it's Ruth who's given birth, but the women address Naomi. Why? Well, it's bringing things back full circle. Remember, it was Naomi who was the initial focus of the book. She's the one we learned early on who's been left husbandless and childless, and with seeming no hope. But Ruth has pledged her loyalty to Naomi, to care for and to provide for her, which is really the Lord 
behind the scenes, pledging to care for and to provide for her through Ruth. Amen. Ruth marries Naomi's family redeemer. Mm. And Ruth gives birth to this child. Mm. And not simply for herself, but in a very real sense for Naomi. Mm. Where the book started with Naomi being left deprived of husband and child. As we come to the close of the book, what do we see? Husband and child. Yes, directly for Ruth, but indirectly for Naomi. It's in her family line. The Lord intends to prosper it. Secondly, did, did you notice that the one, did you notice the, the one through whom the Lord means to prosper this family? It's the child. And did you notice that the child is referred to as the redeemer? And the woman said at the birth that the Lord has not left you this day without a redeemer. Yeah. He shall be to you a restorer of life and nourishment. For your daughter-in-law has given birth to him. All throughout the focus has been on Boaz as the redeemer. But ultimately, redemption is fulfilled in the child. He is the one who will carry on this family into the future. I mean, had Boaz and Ruth simply married but remained childless, the family name of Elimelech would not have been perpetuated. Ultimately, it depended on a seed, yeah. on a child. Yeah. His birth was crucial. A son is born to carry on this family line but more to carry out God's purposes. Just notice the terms used of him. He would restore life and sustain life, be a nourisher, most immediately in Naomi's life. So much so that verse 17 says, a son has been born to Naomi. This woman who once professed to be empty is now full again. Her life once full of sorrow, is now full of joy and laughter. She is no longer Mara, bitter. She's back to being Naomi, pleasant, happy, bouncing this little bundle of joy in her lap. As she held this child, think of all that would have been going through her mind. The hurts were real, and they couldn't be wiped away. There was still the very real loss of her husband and her two sons. Mm. There was a sting of death. Mm. There were the pains of hunger she felt from the famine when they initially left Bethlehem. There was the, the fear of destitution that she felt in returning, not knowing how she'd be provided for. But with the birth of a son, there's hope. There's restoration. There's rest and contentment. Amen. Look at what the Lord has done. As she looked at this little baby in her lap, she's laughing, saying, look at what the Lord has done. What Naomi couldn't know, but what we, the readers, know is what the Lord would do. It's hinted at, even at the providential naming of this child. We read in verse 17 that he was named Obed, which means the servant of the Lord. Oh, yeah. And the author tells us that from this child, not only would a family be restored, but a whole nation would be restored. Mm -hmm. This child, 
turns out to be the grandfather of Israel's greatest king, David. But not only that, through this child, a whole world would be restored. As through David, an even greater king, a greater son would be born, who would restore life for all people through his life and death. Jesus Christ. Amen. The book closes with a genealogy, which at first glance seems anticlimactic. I mean, this grand moving story of hurt and pain and loss and love and restoration ends with what for us feels like the closing credits of a movie. Until you realize the importance of genealogies in the Bible. They don't simply look back. They look forward. You see, ever since sin entered into the world, an emphasis has been placed on children. Specifically on a child. A son. Because in Genesis 3.15, God promises the only hope for a sinful world. That a son would be born. Who would crush Satan's head and redeem a people for God. Restore their lives. And with every birth, there was hope that that was the son. But it wasn't Cain. It wasn't Seth. Wouldn't know it. But as more and more children was born, there was hope that that son was coming. And God was preserving a line through which to bring that son. It would be through Abraham, and then through Isaac, and then through Jacob, and through the children of Jacob, specifically through the tribe of Judah, the tribe the Lord promised in Genesis 49 that a ruler would come from who would rule over all the nations. And verse 18 here picks up at Judah's son, Perez, and traces his offspring forward. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amminadab. Amminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. This Boaz here that we've met in this book is in the line that God was using to bring about a king who would rule over his people. His great ancestor Judah was who God promised rule to. But while the Boaz we meet in this book is worthy and wealthy, He's certainly not royalty. All right. And yet God providentially orchestrates the events of this book to bring a poor Moabite girl to Bethlehem to marry this man and to bring about a son whose offspring would raise up a king. None of the characters in this book could have imagined that happening. Yeah. But that's the point. God works in mysterious ways. That's right. His wonders to perform. He uses the seemingly ordinary things of life, the pains and heartbreaks of life to accomplish his grand purposes. This book of Ruth was written long after the events in it actually took place. We see that throughout, as the author talks about the ancient practice of sandal swapping for a transaction. And the fact that Ruth and Boaz's grandchild, David, is mentioned. Obviously, it's sometime after David's birth and ascendance to the throne. 
so that he's well known to the readers. The actual events in the book happened, we learned in the first chapter of, the first sentence of, of chapter one, in the days when the judges ruled. It was a dark time in Israel's history where sin was rampant. I mean, the very last sentence in the book of Judges says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Yet into that milieu, into that setting, the events of Ruth take place. The author, writing generations later to the people of Israel, is meaning to show them that even at the darkest times, when things look hopeless, God is at work in amazing ways. He shines a light into the darkness, provides hope where there is none. From the chaos of the time of the judges, God was raising up a king in unexpected ways. And God's people should trust him, rest in him, look to him. Fast forward roughly a thousand years. And again, Israel finds itself in a dark place where sin again is rampant and God is distant. They have not heard him speak in more than 400 years. And everyone, in a sense, is still doing what's right in their own eyes. But into that darkness, again, God shines a light. The first book of the New Testament, Matthew, begins where Ruth ends with a genealogy. Tracing out God's provision of a king. And included in that genealogy in Matthew 1 is this genealogy of Ruth 4. Salmon, Matthew writes, gives birth to Boaz, and Boaz to Obed, and Obed to Jesse, and Jesse to David, the king. But unlike the genealogy here, the genealogy in Matthew 1 keeps going. Ultimately, through through David's line, through Boaz's line, comes the Christ. The Messiah, the Savior of the world. He was born in Bethlehem. The prayer that that Boaz's seed would be renowned in Bethlehem, that the elders prayed, was indeed answered by God. And Jesus' fame has spread from Bethlehem throughout all the ends of the earth because he's given his very life to save all peoples from all tribes and tongues and languages. Through the birth of this redeemer, God would not simply save one family from famine Mm -hmm. or one widow from childlessness. He was saving all humanity from their sins. Mm -hmm. Friends, God's purposes are being fulfilled in perplexing ways. We can't always trace his hand. Don't always know what he's doing. But we know he's in control. Amen. And we know he cares for us. The Bible keeps showing us that, keeps telling us that. Do we believe it? In the darkness of our own lives, when sorrow and sin seem to prevail, where will we turn? Within? Interpreting life through our own lenses? Or will we turn to the testimony of the scriptures? 
interpreting life through God's lenses. God is working in the midst of the seeming madness, maturing you and preparing you, just as he prepared his people then, for your king. Amen. Jesus Christ, the king who came, who was born to redeem you, is returning, is coming back to finally rescue you. In him we hope. To him we look. Though life may be hard and bitter like Naomi, friends, for us too, there is a happy ending. All right. The Lord will fill us up. We'll restore all that's been lost in our lives and will give us everlasting joy. Redemption has been accomplished as God promised it would. And friends, redemption will be consummated yeah. as God promises it will be. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope and endurance, joy that your word gives. Mm. The fuel to persevere through trials that your, your word gives us. Mm. The hope in Christ that your word leads us to. Lord, we pray that we will lean not on ourselves, mm but more and more and more upon you. Lord, we praise you for your purposes to restore your people through all the twists and turns, through sorrows and sadness, for your glory. Yeah. Help us to look to you even more. Yeah. Pray this in Jesus' name. Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.